Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 68. Baseball like it ought to be. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the True True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This episode, I am turning my attention to sports at a specific sports event that occurred 30 years ago this week. The New York Mets beat the Boston Red Sox in the 1986 World Series. And along with me to talk about the 86 season, playoffs and series will be fellow TTF podcaster and New York Mets fan, Paul Spataro. It was a great conversation. You'll get to hear us reminisce right after this quick break. Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough so it's better to just set it up oh, okay it, do, it really doesn't work well so i checked right. uh i checked my uh mm-hmm. call, my it definitely built built me for the hotel for all three of us join back to the bins every week for goodness solomon grundy hate voiceovers and the Dodgers, Tuesday night at 7.30. And we're back. Um, So I've been wanting to do this episode for, I think, the better part of six months to a year. And this isn't one of those cases where um, I kept putting it off and kept putting it off and we finally got around to it. Um, I had a specific reason for doing this show, uh, releasing it this time, and that it is the 30th anniversary of of the 1986 World Series. And uh, I've been, as I said in my intro, I've been a Mets fan for 31 years now. And I wanted to bring somebody along with me to sit down and and talk Mets about. And uh, 
Believe it or not, there's at least a few Mets fans in the Two True Freaks family, and one in particular who I think is really, uh, really going to share some great stories tonight, um, and that is Paul Spataro. So please welcome to the show. How are you doing, Paul? Good, Tom. Thanks for having me on, and I am always thrilled to talk Mets. It's one of my passions. It's right there with comics, movies. Uh, I, I, I've been a diehard fan for many years now, although I think our history is a little different. We'll talk about it. You know, you said you wanted to go into that a little, and we'll talk about it because I think you uh, were indoctrinated younger than I was. I, I was um, just just a little brief of my my origin story because I did a bunch of blog posts back in the back in two thousand eleven or so that that covered some of the stuff, but. Um, I started following this team in 1985. Um, I specifically remember a friend of mine went to a game and uh, started talking about the Mets and Gary Carter and stuff. And I was sort of, I was playing Little League, you know, so I was sort of into baseball. I had friends who were sort of into baseball. And my uncle Lou, who had just married my Geraldine about a year before, was, a, was is, and has, will always be a hard Mets fan. And he got us tickets that summer to see them play the Padres. And that happened to be Dwight Gooden's 20th win, um, which he became the youngest player at that time to ever win 20 games. And uh, then I, they went into a late season game in 85. And then I was about eight and nine years old. And, you know, it, it sounds, you know, it's it's easy to latch onto a team when they're winning at the level that the Mets were in the mid 80s. But um, I was hooked in from there. And then I've been a fan since then. You know, it's ebbed and it ebbed and flowed a little bit in the '90s. Um, I think with just about any Mets fan can say that, especially because of the strike and then kind of coming back. And uh, you know, and and I've seen them through some really awful years, but it's one of those things that I I can't even explain it. You just you you get this team and and you fall in love with it. And and we're gonna go into a lot more about that. But yeah, but so I've been I was about nine years old in nineteen eighty six. And um but you and and I was saying before the break, um we will sometimes whenever I'm on back to the bins and I'm also when I'm not, but I'm listening to it, you will sometimes get ribbed for being the senior member of the podcast. But I did specifically invite you on the show because you're older than I am and you have a different perspective because you were old. You were I you didn't have a bedtime in 1986 like I did. So you could not only watch the games on TV, you could go to the games at night. Um, but what is your what is your essential origin story? Um of the Mets and like, like with me, it was between the Mets and the Yankees. It was whoever got to me first in my family. Cause I have a cousin who's exactly my age. Who's a huge Yankees fan. Cause his dad was the Yankees fan. Mm-hmm. And for my parents. <laughs> yeah, I know they, they just, my mom's side of the family, a lot of Yankees fans and, and, um, and Brian, my uncle Brian was huge. Like going back to mantle. I mean like years and years, and with me, it was my parents are both kind of neutral when it comes to sports. So it was, you know, Uncle Lou taking us to a game and it was like I was hooked from there. But how did you how did you come to the Mets? Well, until the 80s, until the early 80s, I mean, by 86, I was deeply indoctrinated into it. But until mm-hmm. the early 80s, I was not particularly a sports fan. Mm-hmm. As, as a young kid, I was not particularly athletic. And I didn't have a tremendous interest in sports. It was kind of on the periphery a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, the Mets and I were born in the same year. Hmm. 
And I have memories of them going to the World Series in 69, although I was not a big fan at the time. My brother, the brother closest in age to me, who's two and a half years older than, than I am, he was very into it the year that they won in 69. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like watched along, you know, he kind of got me to watch along. And he did that, you know, basically into our teen years uh, when, when they went to the World Series again in 73. And I did latch on to individual players. I was always a fan of Seaver. Uh, John Matlack, I became a fan of. Bud Harrelson, I was a fan of. And, and I kind of just latched on to those players as the years went on. And you combine that with the fact that my, my dad was friendly with Rocco Torre. And in the mid to late 70s into the early 80s, Rocco, who was Joe's brother, would hit him up for tickets, and we would go to Shea Stadium at least once a year mm. as a family, and we would sit behind home plate underneath the net because Joe Torre would get us those tickets. <laughs> nice. So then I would say I really got heavily into it. Uh, I started to get more into it like in the very early 80s when I was – like I would sit and read the sports section, and I was getting more and more into it. And then in 82, when Seaver was reacquired, or excuse me, in 83, that was, that's when I really got heavily into it. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they had a bad season that year in 83. And, uh, but, I, but I still, you know, I went to a lot of games. You got to keep in mind that's right about when I was, you know, kind of early in my driving career. Yeah. And, and me and my friends could say, hey, let's just go over to Shea Stadium. And I even remember, like, in the 86 season, uh, general admission tickets, I think, were like, six dollars they so, were and, and and parking was like four so we we would be hanging out and we'd say how much money do you have in your wallet i got ten dollars let's go to shea stadium <laughs> you know and we would just go and we'd buy general admission tickets and then we'd sneak down as much as we could sneak down and yeah. by 84 when they surprisingly contended you know that was that was just a, a year that that really sucked us in and then in 85 you know, we had higher expectations, but I have to admit, 85 might be the most exciting season as a Mets fan that I've ever had. Yeah. I, I probably went to about between 40 and 50 of the 80 home games that year. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with that by general admission ticket attitude. Yeah. And, and they, I mean, they contended right up until the end. They didn't quite make the playoffs back then. You didn't have wild cards. You only had two divisions yeah. in the National League. You know, you had two players, two teams from the National League would make the playoffs. They'd play each other, and the winner would go to the World Series. That was the format back then. Yeah. Then in 86, at that point, I was done with college. I was 23 years old. I had gotten my first real job. I was working on Wall Street, and I had some friends on the job from my job. And there were eight of us who bought Sunday season tickets. So for every Sunday home game, we went. Mm-hmm. You combine that with the games that we would just go, <laughs> but yeah. we could talk a little bit more as we go on about the attending games. Uh, yeah, but but it was just you know I, by that time you know the Mets were were that some of the Mets dominated my life. Oh yeah, and um, that '85 team, I still have good memories of that. And you know you forget, and to this day I do not like the St. Louis Cardinals, and Same. and. You know that those mid '80s Cardinals teams, or those '80s Cardinals teams, were phenomenal as well. I mean, they were tough, tough teams to beat. And if you look at the lineup for those, you had Ozzie Smith, and you had, um, 
uh, Jack Clark, Jack Clark, Vince uh, Coleman, Andy Van Slyke, Terry, Andy Van Slyke, I think came along later. He he was there, and then he, he had been on Pittsburgh, I think, at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you had uh, uh, Terry Effing Pendleton, who I will never forgive for the '87 season. If, 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 it, <laughs> oh. if it makes it feel even a little bit more real to you, I was at that game. <laughs> oh, the, I still have memories of that game, and my wife, my wife's an Atlanta Braves fan. Having been uh, born, you know what? I, I really liked yeah. her until now. Yeah, <laughs> and and the only thing that her and I will ever agree on in baseball, in terms of the Mets Braves thing, is the end of the that is is uh, Barry Bonds failing to throw out Sid Bream at home plate in that one playoff game where Atlanta beat Pittsburgh to go to the series because I just don't like Barry Bonds. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there, too. I don't yeah, think we're going to disagree about yeah, too yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, I mean, But, I mean, it was just that 85 team was one where you're right. They were, like, right on the right on the verge, but they were stopped by a Cardinals team that was just that better. I mean, you had they had a good pitching staff. John Tudor, I remember being one of the aces on that staff and who shut yeah, them down. Yeah, he came, he came over – in a trade, I believe, from Boston, mm-hmm. and was all of a sudden just this phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, they, they actually thought Gooden had one of the best years in 85 any pitcher mm-hmm. has ever had. Yes. And Tuda contended for the Cy Young Award in the National League despite that. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, you know, Gooden got it, but, but, but it wasn't a runaway. Yeah. Okay. And because Gooden, and Gooden was like mowing them down in 85. And he was. 84 and 85, he was just something to behold those two years. And yeah. I went to so many games where he struck out like 16 batters. It was mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. And and I was going through um, – I have I have some books and paraphernalia about the 86 team. I have, I have the yearbook because um, every time I went to a – I went to my – whenever I went to my first Mets game of the season, I tended to go to like one or two um, when I was a kid. I would buy a yearbook and I would buy a program. And I still have some of the programs, but I definitely have a yearbook. Um, as, as some of us tend to be a little OCD, <laughs> uh, I have the 86 yearbook. And then I have, after the uh, trade deadline, the updated 86 yearbook. I have the updated re- edition. I'm staring at it right now. I have both. I, I also have, because um, you know we'll, we'll get into the series later, but my uncle, my uncle Lou went to one of the uh, – a few of the games at least – and got me the program, and I still have the program. And then I have also brought down with me the 87 yearbook because the 87 yearbook recaps 86, uh, plus a bunch of other stuff. But I was I was looking at the lineups, and I'm it. It's not like people who who are big on baseball trivia might not remember a lot of the players that are that are listed on Mets lineup from 86 in the same way they'd remember I don't know the Cincinnati Big Red Machine or something or like one of those those really stacked lineups because there aren't a lot of players in that lineup who are in um the Hall of Fame I think the only one really is uh Gary Carter as far uh, as the Hall of Fame, yeah. As far as the Hall uh, of Fame is concerned, if, if there's anybody else who's in the Hall of Fame, I'm having, I'm just trying to think about it off the top of my head. If there is anyone else, they're not there based on their Mets career. Yeah, yeah. And I've always contended Hernandez should be in the Hall of Fame, but the stats I, might I say, say and I'm a huge Hernandez fan. Yeah. In, in '86, I used to get people who thought, you know, they were like, "Oh, you look exactly like Keith Hernandez," <laughs> and uh, so I, that made me even like a bigger fan. And I, I got to put him on borderline. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I mean, his defense is really what should put him over the top. Yes. But 
defense generally doesn't get you into the Hall of Fame, and I feel like his yeah. his offense is just shy of what what mm-hmm. it should get to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, you have a better speaking voice than Keith Hernandez. <laughs> I love the guy. We were talking about it last night. I went to the game last night with some of my buddies, and we were talking yeah. about it. And we were saying in the last two years, we think Hernandez has really like upped his game as far as the mm-hmm. quality, his quality as an announcer. Because mm-hmm. it seemed like he was just kind of like, you know, just going with it. You know, he'll talk about whatever you talk about, but he didn't seem to really do any homework or anything. Yeah. Where he seems much better prepared the last two years and much more entertaining. He's He's got more mm-hmm. of a sense of humor about himself. Because he's, he's brilliant. And and Darling in that in that broadcast booth is also brilliant. I love I love listening to them when I can when I can get them because sometimes down here in Virginia, all I can get are um, either if they're on ESPN, and I just do not like the ESPN, uh, or if they're on Fox. But if they're doing the if they're playing the Orioles for an interleague game, or if they're playing um, Washington, Washington's broadcast team is terrible. Who do they have in Washington? I don't remember. I kind of block it out. Wasn't there? Was there? A, wasn't there a stretch where Darling was doing the Washington games? I think he so. Came back to the Mets. He may have been, but I don't. I don't remember very well. I watched so few Nationals games, even though I don't have anything against the team. Um, and you know they're doing well this year. They'll 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 probably have choked by this point. Um, but I mean we had a and we had a decent broadcast team back in '86 too, at least for. I used to watch them. I didn't get Sports Channel, so I used to watch them on WR, and I would sometimes, if I could get um, – I don't even think it was – was it the fan back then or was it still WHN? It became the fan after okay. the season. It so, was WHN. It was a country music station mm-hmm. up until sometime in 1987 when they became all, sto- all sports format. Yeah, and Bob Murphy was the play-by-play, and I don't remember who was doing the – the color commentary, but Bob Murphy, so many years, the voice of the Mets, along with Ralph Kiner, who was doing, um, who was doing the play by play on TV along with, and Lindsay Nelson, Lindsay Nelson. Okay. Uh, and, um, in, in, in 86, you had for color commentary, somebody who has been, who became notorious after a while for his presence on Fox, but Tim McCarver at, at that point in his broadcast, career tim mccarver was brilliant i know and that's tim the mccarver f- played baseball until 1981 mm-hmm. he, he he was or it was either 80 or 81 he's one of very few players who played in three separate decades because he started in the 1950s he finished in the 1980 or yeah. four decades excuse me he started yeah. i think in 59 was his rookie year and 81 was his retirement mm-hmm. but he he was he was so sharp at that point he was pointing out things that people didn't see yeah and he he would he would first guess Davy Johnson, often agreeing with him, but occasionally pointing out why he would have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. He'd say, I, you know, I think Johnson's making a good decision here, but this is the other alternative that he could go with. And it really was eye-opening at the time. Eventually, I think it became a little stale because people yeah. just got used to it, and it, it became you know a, more of a caricature of what it was. Mm-hmm. But in like. 84, 85, 86, those years, probably up until, like, say, around 1990, Tim McCarver was the best broadcaster in baseball, no question about it. Yeah, and they had a third guy in the booth every once in a while, Steve Zabriskie, who was 
who was there? I mean, he, he, I remember remember having a conversation that year with one of my buddies and I I pointed out to him because I I remember like reading up on this. Steve Zabriskie's purpose in the booth was kind of actually Steve Zabriskie was there for you. You you said you were Mm -hmm. nine years old at the time. Yeah. Steve Zabriskie was there for the younger fans to kind of explain things in a much more simplistic fashion. And help them kind of through it and understand it. His role was kind of to turn people like you into Met fans. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense then. I I, I remember a little bit about him. I, I know his reputation was not as the most exciting announcer. And Kiner, I, I used to um, – my summer job in college was as one of the many field workers at Robert Moses State Park. And um, my foreman was a huge Mets fan. And that was – one of those summers was that summer where – it was like 96. It was that summer where Todd Hundley was, was hitting – a lot of home runs and um he used to have, used to have the, would call over to his friend to because you know if we to see uh what, what the game was because we couldn't get the station if we couldn't get the station in the office and his friend would always be like yeah Kiner's into his second six pack of Rheingold and I think I don't think he was ever really drinking in the booth but it was I mean New York had some really good just fun to listen to broadcast teams because even though I did not like the Yankees and never really have Every once in a while, if I had nothing better to watch on television, I would flip over to PIX and watch a Yankees game because Phil Rizzuto was actually fun to listen to because the Yankees were so bad toward the end of the 80s that Rizzuto would just ramble on for innings about nothing. <laughs> yeah, he, he, I, I found Phil Rizzuto to be an acquired taste. It's just sometimes it was just like listening to your uncle. I had the salad the other day. Watching after the seventh inning because he was already on the George Washington Bridge by then. Yeah, pretty much. If if they had if they had smartphones by back then, he would have been just literally dialing it in. Uh, But he he was on with Bill White back then, who mm -hmm. was also you know very intelligent in the way he presented the game. He complimented Rizzuto really well. So and and I only bring up the Yankees because, um, like I said earlier, there are a lot of Yankees fans in my family, and I never begrudged. I never begrudged my cousin his fandom because because um, his father was a fan going back decades. And he and my grandfather used to have these great conversations about baseball. The two of us would just listen in because my, my dad's dad was um, – he lived in Brooklyn until they moved out to New Hyde Park. And he was I, – I, he was either – he was not a Yankees fan. He was either a Dodgers or a Giants fan. I think a Giants fan in Brooklyn is probably the reason they, they probably drove him out for that. But um, – but I know he was a National League fan, so they would talk about like old time baseball right at the time my father, my grandfather died, and and I never begrudged Brian his fandom because he he saw through, um, you know, Lou Pinella and Billy Martin and Buck Showalter and Billy Martin and Yogi Berra and Billy Martin and Billy Martin, you know, like and <laughs> all the Steinbrenner stuff and and um, but I'd always have to hear crap about. You know, the Mets were a relatively new team compared to the Yankees. And Yankees fans throw the word tradition around like they're going to be auditioning for, like, Fiddler on the Roof at some point. Tradition! 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 
and they talk about Yankee Stadium, Yankee Stadium. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Shea because Shea Stadium is no longer there. It is it is the parking lot next to City Field. Um, you could still they've out what's cool that you know they've they and you know this they've outlined where the bases were mm-hmm. um, in in the infielded Shea. But Shea hosted um, among other things in its roughly fifty year history, almost fifty year history. Um, it hosted the Mets, obviously. It used to host the Jets. Yeah, that uh, was until 83 or 84. Mm-hmm. I think 84 was the first year that the Jets played in Jersey. Yeah, and then they retro- they refitted the stadium so that they couldn't move the field level, I believe. Cause yeah, yeah, for- after that. Yeah, um, and then uh, they famously hosted the Beatles' first American concerts. Well, uh, they, they had them in 64 and then again in 65. Mm-hmm. And they hosted a number of rock acts over the year. I think they hosted the Pope at one point. And three, one all-star game, um, which was 64. And I Scott's not listening to this, but from what I understand, the the stadium opened around the same time as the World's Fair, and it was outdrawing the World's Fair at some points. Uh, or it was competing with the World's Fair at some points in terms of attendance. And it's pretty much walking distance from the World's Fair. It is. In fact, um, I've never actually been on the grounds of Corona Park or the World's Fair fairgrounds, but I've driven by that globe a number of times on my way to, to Shea and into Queens. Um, that was my experience, too, until Mr. Gardner got me to uh, to spend two afternoons <laughs> in the last two years just taking it all in, which... To be honest with you, it was eye-opening and, and terrific. I've always wanted to do that. And, and if the next time I come up, I, I plan on doing something like that and whenever I get the chance. Um, but it had three World Series, 69, 73, and 86. And I don't know, like maybe I'm, I'm biased. And 2000. And 2000, that's right, 2000. And a number of playoff games between them, some of which were heartbreaking um, because of – you know, some of which were, were excellent, and there were playoff games that, even though they didn't go to the World Series from that from that playoff series, you remember them. And then there are some that you just you don't want to think about, like that Mike Sosha game. And um, you know what? I was at that one too. <laughs> and that game, I watched the most heartbreaking home runs I was at Terry uh, Pendleton and Mike. Uh, uh, this is rough. And then yeah, so. It was, I mean, I'm biased because this is where I grew up going to the games. And you talk about driving up. Where were, I mean, where were you living? If At that I, time, I lived in Brooklyn, in okay. the Green Park area. It was about, without traffic, about a, 25 minutes to half an hour to Shea. But, you know, when you went to a game that was sold out, the, the traffic was not regulated that well. So you no. take, you know, you could take an hour and a half to get in there for, uh, you know, a, a sellout. Yeah. And I was out on the island uh, in Sayville. My grandparents up until um, my up until maybe the early 2000s, my, my grandmother still lived in the same house in New Hyde Park. And uh, so we would go there. And then carpool over, and my uncle Lou knows knew some of the back way, um, but there were some games I remember where you know because the Grand Central would just back up, mm-hmm. and you'd crawl in the Grand Central, and you know you'd come in in the second inning, and you had intended you know, and you had thought you'd left early enough and stuff like that, but it was kind of a haul. But there were some times in the early nineties, like in ninety two, ninety three, and ninety four, when they were pretty terrible. That um, you could 
do that where you would be able it was still i think about 758 dollars for a ticket and we would sometimes just drive up the day of a game um and see what tickets were available they were always upper deck which always made you wonder if you were going to fall off the stadium because it was so damn high up and yeah we'd, we'd take in a game i used to do that with the islanders by the way I'm a diehard Ranger fan, but I've been to more Isles games because there were so many years where they were terrible. But my friends and I would just drive over to the Coliseum just to see hockey um, and and pay for the cheap seats at, at the Coliseum because getting to the garden was a pain in the ass, even though we well, could do it on train. Is, but... you know, when, when I lived in Brooklyn, and I was an Islander fan then as well, mm-hmm. but I saw more Islander games at Madison Square Garden hmm. than I did at the Nassau Coliseum Yeah, because I had a friend who had season tickets to the Rangers and went they were playing against the islanders he'd say hey do you want to go yeah and we had to like to get to the garden uh, quick tangent to get to the garden we either had to find a train that went out of sable and changed either babylon or jamaica or we could get a direct one out of ronkonkoma but then it's like then you're still spending an hour to an hour and a half each way and so it was you know it was easy to get in because it was the, the gardens right there but it was one of those things where like do we want to spend the money and do this or do we just want to take you know a quarter of a tank of gas and drive out there and drive back so but yes there's some sorry i just wanted i'm I'm sorry because i'm interrupting you no 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 no. unrelated here but just because it had come up before and i just saw it on i had a page up on my screen uh uh, you had mentioned about the the mets radio team in 86 yeah and bob murphy's sidekick at that time was gary thorne oh gary thorne i believe he's the voice of the chicago white Sox now and he does a lot of national games and in fact Mm -hmm. he was the MC this year at the Hall of Fame ceremonies. Okay. So he's he's certainly a prominent announcer at this point in his career. Yeah. There's certain voices you recognize too across all sports. Um hockey is another one where I recognize people like Sam Rosen and John Davidson and 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 and, and, you, and like then you hear any one of the Albert brothers, Marv or Kenny or whoever, and you know, you could recognize them right off the bat. Um but no, Gary Thorne's Another one who's really, really solid. But Shay, Shay was a, a, a part of a very odd era of stadiums, the very, very beginning of an odd era of stadiums, um, that many of which are by and large gone or have been refitted to the point where you don't recognize them very much anymore, except for maybe the Oakland Coliseum, um, where they're often derided as what they call cookie cutter stadiums. The the idea that you could build a stadium that was multifunctional. So two sports, baseball and football, were played in the stadium. And I'm talking about stadiums that would come later, mostly like um, the Kingdome, the Astronome, the the, uh, the Vet, Three Rivers, Riverfront, um, Oakland. The, the Astrodome came the same year as Shea. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and the Astrodome was, was kind of its own animal. There's mm-hmm. nothing else quite like the Astrodome. Yeah. But Three Rivers, Veterans Stadium. Uh, uh, what, what did Cincinnati play in? Riverfront. Riverfront. Yeah, yeah. They were all, they were cookie cutter in that they were all the same. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that that made one of them stand out among the among the rest. Yeah, and Shea yeah, but- Shea was just prior to that era. Of because I think those were all built in the late sixties, early seventies, and Shea was built. Shea opened in about sixty four or so. After yeah, um, before that, the the Mets played at the Polo Grounds, Grounds. Where, the, where the Giants had used to yeah had played before they went to San Francisco. Yeah, and through the seventies, eighties, and and um, 
you had a lot of stadiums. The ones that were built were very much like that. And then you had in the early 90s, I think the stadium that really started this trend of brick and attention to baseball as a game. And even that throwback to a prior era was Oriole Park at Camden Yards, Mm -hmm. and um, which I've been to a number of times because I went to college in Baltimore um, and went to a couple of playoff games and, and had a lot of experiences because I had people, I knew people who worked the same thing where I knew people who worked stuff. We got free tickets or we got cheap seats or whatever. And it's an interesting, it's a fun stadium to go to, but Orioles fans can be very boring. Um, but it, that, that jump started this whole sort of let's build stadiums that look like stadiums used to look um, this sort of weird, this nostalgia for the game, which Worked out, dovetailed well with the resurgence of the game after the strike. Uh, but there, so so people started to really tisk tisk these stadiums that were built that we kind of grew up seeing games in or seeing games in on television. And Shea got lumped into that. Um, and Shea was a very weird, weirdly constructed stadium. The only thing I can think of, uh, one of the few that I, I, I can think of at the top of my head, like Dodger Stadium is very similar, where the vast majority of the seats were in foul territory. Um, and there were some bleachers in the outfield, and there were some parts of it that were in fair territory if you were over in the um, in the very, very edges of of the, uh, the loge, the upper deck, and the mezzanine. And the only person to ever hit a home run into the upper deck was Tommy Agee, I believe, because I think yeah, they marked a, the spot. A seat that was marked, and I remember yeah. one of the games where we bought general admission tickets, we had to go sit there. Yeah. Um, I Toward the end of its life, Shea was really showing its age. And I remember going to a game there when, during its last season. I went to, they went to see the card. They played the Cardinals. They slaughtered the Cardinals. We actually left early because it was starting to threaten a thunderstorm. And... Um, but I remember the expression that kept being used was it's kind of a dump, but it's our dump. And parts of it were a dump. But at the same time, I don't know, like there was something special about it. I mean, you probably went to more games than me. What was what was your impression about Shea Stadium? Why do you hold it? I hold it in a lot of in a higher regard than a lot of people probably do who weren't Mets fans. Well, it's not higher than I. I do. I, I, I love Shea Stadium. And uh, I, I take issue with the people who call it a dump because I don't think it ever really was a dump. Uh, I think it's it's almost universal. It's not not unique to the Mets. I think it's whenever, whenever uh, one of the teams decides that they need a new stadium, they have to deride the old one. Mm-hmm. And the reason they need a new stadium isn't because the old stadium is so bad. The reason they need a new stadium is because they want to upgrade some of their facilities. They want to bring in new, uh, you know, restaurants and things yeah. of that nature because that's become much more popular at the ball games than they used to be. Because they want to put in some more luxury boxes, luxury boxes, and yeah, high, high, you know, high level seating and and these fancier restaurants that you have to have special tickets to even get into. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the reason why. Shea Stadium had to go, and they needed City Field, which I love City Field, so don't mm-hmm. take this the wrong way. No, no, no. But I think what happens is when these owners get it into their heads, okay, it's time for me to get a new stadium, they start skimping on the maintenance for the old stadium, and they, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that it's a dump. Yeah. They don't, they don't do the same upkeep that they should be doing, and they don't bother to renovate little things that could make it a more pleasant experience. And then people start saying, see, look, that bathroom's leaking and whatever. 
But it's because they want to get their new stadium that they let that happen. And when they try to say nobody comes to this ballpark, stadium, arena, whatever it is for whatever sport, and they try to blame it on the stadium, I think that's such a fallacy that it's ridiculous. Because I think if you put a winning product on the field or on the ice, people come. Yeah. And they don't really care about the stadium that much. Yeah, because few stadiums – like it- – Granted, it wasn't Wrigley and it wasn't Fenway, which have almost gotten – I don't think they're on the National Register of Historic Places or anything like that. But if you were to try to tear down either of those, you would have a riot on your hands. Um, and Ebbets Field, and, Ebbets Field, maybe more than the Polo Grounds, got torn down in the midst of just a lot of different political things that were going on. And, and O'Malley – that was the name of the – Dodgers owner, right? O'Malley? Walter O'Malley. Yeah. Wanting the money from the move to LA and, you know, and, but so, so there's a lot of nostalgia for him. But with Shea, you're right. It's, it, it you're right. Is they, they make it a self-fulfilling prophecy because they want the money from the new, the new stadium revenue. And I mean, we won't get into the whole politics of, of using taxpayer money and, and all that. Cause there's, that's all their conversation. But I just remember – you remember specific things about going to Shea. Um, walking in, going through the turnstiles, the tallest escalators I've ever seen. Um, then the ramps you had to walk down to get out of the stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, this feeling of vertical, which was not – helped by not which didn't hurt by LaGuardia being right next to it and the planes sometimes flying overhead um that's you know that's not something that they sometimes flew overhead they frequently flew overhead (laughs) for whatever reason they never changed flight flight path path. I mean LaGuardia is literally within just a few miles yes Shea Stadium but I don't see the planes flying over City Field now no um they always flew over Shea and I don't know exactly why I I I think they might have even been using Shea kind of as a, you know, as a, a, landmark. As a landmark to help them find where they were going. Yeah, and uh, if you looked out the the landmark, I always remember if you looked out from if you're sitting behind home plate and you're in the upper deck because you can see all the way out into Flushing is that there was a U-Haul place. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you know the U-Haul place to talk about, and and, and um, the, the 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 jumbotron or what they refer to as Diamond Vision was huge, and the scoreboard was massive. And it got loud in that stadium. Well, Shea, Shea was also what they called the Horseshoe Stadium mm-hmm. because the seats pretty much went from the right field foul area just slightly beyond that into, you know, in, into the home run area. Yeah. To the left field with the same thing. And the beyond that was where you had your scoreboard. You had the bullpen. Mm-hmm. They did have one small area where, where they could have, you could have like a barbecue. Yeah, party. You know, they had like these bleachers that were on this corrugated metal, and if it was a hot day, it was almost like uh, you know those <laughs> those reflectors that people put under their necks when they're yes. It was almost like you were standing on a giant one of those. Oh, I, I remember one game in oh, it was probably around two thousand and one, mm-hmm. and it was a double header, and I took my son, and we were in that party area, and. It was around the second or third inning. He was just soaking wet. He was like three or four years old. And he, he uh, just, you know, he, I said, okay, let, let me go to get you some cold water. And I took him down and we got some ice water and I let him drink it. And then I started to go back. And he was like, dad, 
I can't. <laughs> we got in the car. We drove home. I exercised, took a shower, and drove out to my brother's house in the Poconos and watched the end of the second game of the double. <laughs> um, it would have killed him if we stayed for both of those games. Yeah, probably. Literally. Yeah. Um, there were very few bad seats in Shea. I think the only bad seats in the stadium were probably in the very, very back of the mezzanine in Loge. And, uh, and I probably have to just give some, some reference here. There were four levels of seats in the main seating area, and they were different colors by then. Um the field level, which was on the field, was the lowest level, was orange. Above that, the second level was called the loge. It was blue. Above that, the third level was called the mezzanine, and it was green. And then the upper deck, which is the fourth level, was red. And the very back of some of the loge mezzanine seats, the overhang from the section above it would obstruct the view a little bit if you were trying to see balls going up. Other than that, there really weren't any bad seats in the house. Um, there were no, you know, there's no poles in the way of anything. And, uh, and you know, the upper deck was really, really high up. So you could, everybody looked really tiny. And I used to bring my grandfather's World War II era binoculars with me um, to, to look through. And they had, and they had this, they had like the scope on them. So everybody was like in my sights. But, uh, now, but now, yeah, what it was worth. I also saw Billy Joel at Chase Stadium. I saw the Who uh, at Chase Stadium. I saw Bruno Sammartino fight Stan Hansen at Chase Stadium. Uh, you know, there were other things yes, going on there. Yes. Attended. yes. But when it was full and when they were good, that stadium got deafeningly loud. You didn't need gimmicks or anything to get that crowd fired up. And I think that's one of the things that made me fall in love with being a Mets fan is that the diehards like they had they knew how to root for that team and they still do um you know there there was the let's go mets chant which is so unique it's it's kind of unique because there's always that a lot of teams use that sort of chanty let's go especially if it's a double syllabic team like the yankees but the let's go mets chant is something that well it became its own music video <laughs> Which I have on VHS. The music video? I have the music video. I can tell you a story about the music video. <laughs> um, we'll get to that because okay. we'll get to that. Um, so so let's get into the the beginning of the, the season. Um, I don't. They were. I don't know if they were picked. To, they were picked to completely win the division by everybody going in, or if they were just picked to be once again in contention with a team with like St. Louis because St. Louis had gone to the series and lost to Kansas city in, in seven games uh, in, in 1985. Actually, they should have won in six. Yeah. Because of a, Except of a bad call. call. Don Deckinger at first base made a bad call on a, mm -hmm. on, on a play where the uh, Kansas city runner should have been out. Yeah. And had that gone that way, St. Louis would have won the world series in six instead. Yeah. They lost in seven to my delight. <laughs> And then, um, so they come back, the Mets come back, they, they, I think they split a couple in Pittsburgh and they lose on opening day in the 13th inning on an error by Howard Johnson. I remember watching that game at home. I had just gotten home from school, I think. That was, that was when I was in a stretch of about 12 to 13 straight opening days that I went to. Mm -hmm. So I was at that game. Yeah. And it was, it was a heartbreaker at the time, but they came, they came into the season supremely confident. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I remember right, there was the one play in spring training where Mookie Wilson 
they were practicing a rundown. Yeah. And Mookie Wilson was the runner, and they threw the ball, and it hit him in the face, mm-hmm. shattering sunglasses he was wearing, and glass went into his eye. So yeah. he went DL before the season started. And in the offseason, we had acquired Bob Ojeda, mm-hmm. uh, who I didn't know at the time. I was unfamiliar with him. He We got him from the Red Sox. Yes. And Tim Tuffle from the Minnesota Twins. Mm-hmm. For, I don't remember, somebody who had been a first-round draft pick, and I was like, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, like I couldn't understand why they were trading him for this platoon player. Yeah. But as it turns out, whoever they traded to get him turned out to be a nobody anyway. Mm-hmm. I think those were the only two real significant acquisitions off the top of my head. I'm trying to think if there yeah, was any. Because Kevin, Kevin Mitchell came up from the farm system. Yes. I believe. And so you go through. Glenn the- Dykstra had come up late in the 85 season. Mm-hmm. And some of the other people had, had been there. Um, and we have uh, – so when you start out the season, you've got this lineup, um, which would vary, especially when Mookie would come back to regular play. Uh, Lenny Dykstra, in, usually in the outfield, usually around center, uh, or Mookie. Um, Wally Backman or Tim Tuffle at second base. And then your three, four, and five never really, uh, never really changed. You had Keith Hernandez playing first. Gary Carter, I think Gary Carter usually batted cleanup. Yes. And uh, Darryl, who's catching. And Although they would play Carter at first sometimes, uh, I guess they were, I don't know what Johnson was doing Not with that. Not particularly, honestly. They, yeah. they, uh, he pretty much played catcher and they mm-hmm. had to rest him. At one point he ended up, I believe it was in the 86 season where he actually had uh, a procedure on his knee and missed about two weeks. He tore his thumb, actually. It was. But he, I know he really didn't do time at first base until later. Yeah, yeah, and, and and toward the end of the season when they were, God, like fifteen twenty games ahead, Johnson was putting in like Dave Magadan and Kevin Elster and like Magadan came up. I believe his first appearance actually was, or his first start, was yeah. the game when the Mets clinched the division. Yes, yeah, because Keith uh, Hernandez had the flu. <laughs> yes. But he still he still came in for the final for the final out, yeah. And uh, but, but you also had uh, Danny Heap in the outfield. Mm-hmm. And he would. Foster was still with the team at the beginning of the year. Yes, he was. So was Ed Lynch in in in, uh, in the pitching rotation, I believe. I loved Ed Lynch as a pitcher. He was such a bulldog. Yeah. Um, the shortstops you would you they'd switch back and forth between Howard Johnson, who would go on to be a really uh, one of the premier players in the very late eighties, early. The very early '90s, he would make the thirty thirty club a few times, and would be kind of the marquee player for for the team. Um, and then you had Rafael Santana, who was just another who was solid. I mean, nobody on the team was really bad. Uh, Santana was was just like he was just very very dependable, and also yeah. very late in the year, Kevin Elster came up. Yeah, yeah, and Ray Knight um, at third, uh, along with some other. People that was the running joke about the Mets for years that they had like a billion third basemen over their history, and out elsewhere in the outfield you had Kevin Mitchell, um, you had Daryl Strawberry out and right. Um, Mitchell effectively, despite what you what people might remember of Mitchell, he effectively became kind of a utility player. Mm-hmm. He played he played almost every position at some point or another: first, second, third, yeah. shortstop, and all three outfield positions. Yeah, he could hit. 
and you're talking National League, so it's not like he could be a DH or anything like that. I mean, he was a good fielder too. Um, he, he, was, he was, you know, fairly reliable. Yeah, nothing spectacular, but he, you know, he'd make yeah. the routine plays and he didn't hurt you. And then at, at, with the Giants, he had that one barehanded catch that would end up on a lot of sports highlight reels for years and years and years. Um, and then on the mound, you had uh, you had a really solid rotation. You had Ron Darling, uh, Dwight Gooden, Bobby Ojeda. Uh, you started with Ed Lynch, um, Sid Fernandez, and then you had uh, Rick Aguilera, and then a couple other people who would filter in and out of the bullpen, like Doug Sisk and Randy Neiman. And then your 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 two bullpen uh, mainstays were uh, Roger McDowell and Jesse Orozco. And these aren't names that you know that have gone down in the history of baseball books where people like you know can pick them out like you know Reggie Jackson and and Mantle and Maris and and you know Ted Williams, Carly Schwarzenegger, like this, these these murderers rose and things. But at the same time, like I look at that team and it ranges from people who were insanely productive in an era where. The in an era where thirty to forty home runs a season was a good was was like the best, you know, people weren't hitting fifty home runs routinely um, in the mid eighties. Uh, but you'd have Carter who was driving in a hundred runs a year, and you had people who were clutch and people who were solid, and and you didn't get to a point where there was a real weakness in the lineup until maybe you got to the dead bottom. But even then, some of the pitchers could hit. So, um, and yeah, that's they had one of those pitching staffs where they kind of competed with each other to try and see who could outdo each other, you know, with the bat. Yeah, Dwight, I... Gooden, Dwight Gooden was forever wanting to bat left handed, mm-hmm. and Davey Johnson just wouldn't let him because he didn't want him to expose his right arm. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's rare when you have a pitching staff that actually wants to hit that way. I mean, I think I would, I, I've already mentioned them, but I would say those 90s Atlanta Braves team had some good hitting pitchers. That that's the last time I remember like be, them being that solid because usually even in the National League the the pitcher hits and you're just like whatever you just hope the guy sacrifice gets a sacrifice bunt down well enough to move the runners over or that you know he draws a walk or maybe gets a hit but you know it's not like Reckley soft boiled where it's the automatic out but <laughs> mm. uh, so you went to a number of games it looks like through the regular season. Um, we'll throw a few high, I guess any, any ones that spring to mind um, before we get into say some of the, some of the later ones, cause I went to two. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with you. Okay, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of regular season games. It, it became so eclipsed by the postseason. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I'm, I'm trying to think of specifics. We had, as, like I said, we had the Sunday season ticket plan and mm-hmm. that was, I think 13 games. Okay, and we our seats were in the me- on the mezzanine level, right by third base, section eight, uh, and the mezzanine would be was broken up into two sections. You had the mezzanine seats, and then you had mezzanine box. Mm-hmm. So the box seats, if you, if you were walking along the walkway around that level, the the box seats would be closer to the field. And then you'd have the walkway, and then you'd have the regular mezzanine seats. Yes. We were in the first row of the regular mezzanine seats. Okay. Right by third base, which had really, really good sight lines for everything that was going on in the field. So one thing I remember is, like I said, there were like eight guys who 
had these tickets together and we would come early we'd do a little tailgating then we after the game we would wait for the parking lot to clear out before we would try and uh you know deal with the traffic going home mm-hmm. one of the guys who went had a father who worked for some corporation i couldn't tell you that had one of the luxury boxes at Shea Stadium. So every once in a while, I would say maybe three times over the course of that season, we'd go to our seats and we'd sit down and then that guy would show up and say, oh, guys, I got the box. And we'd just turn around, get out of our seats and go down and sit in the luxury box. Nice. And the luxury box was, if you went in, it was almost kind of like a hotel suite with drinks and food were all just provided for you. There would be like a little buffet of food and then there would be a bar that you'd just help yourself. And in that area, you had couches and big screen TVs. And then you have sliding doors that walked out onto an area with basically seats to sit in where you could watch the game live. Yeah. And we got those seats for a double header. Uh, I couldn't tell you who they were playing. But in between the two games of the double header, they filmed the stadium portions of the Let's Go Mets Go video. It was the Cardinals because I was at the first game. Okay. I'm not kidding. I I was there. Holy shit. I was there. I was the upper. We didn't have tickets for the second game. So I don't know why, but we only went to the first game. But we. Yeah. I I think your parents lied to you because I don't think that was a split. No, I, don't think I think if you had tickets for one game, you had tickets for both. Yeah, my dad probably was just like, we got to go, you know. The, my dad my dad was the beat the traffic guy. Yeah, so. well, I've, I've become more of that as I've gotten my, older. So. My dad, because we used to go to games with my friend's mom and my friend back in the early 90s. And my friend's mom was the let's hang out by the player's parking lot and see if we can get any balls signed parent. And I had a couple of really cool conversations with John Franco here and there um, doing those games because he is like one of the nicest guys. And he would we would throw ball stuff over to the over the fence. He would catch him and throw it back. Um, But, yeah, I was at that game because we left we left right around the start of the second game. But but, yeah, so I was that was my my video story. Um, And on the making of the video, they show uh, the director of the. the video doing the directing the crowd shot where you got everybody to do the wave. It was like, okay, let's go. And you'd scream, let's go. And I don't think you can see me in the video anywhere or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, I do remember that. That was pretty cool. So yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I can guarantee you, you could not see me, but I remember <laughs> very well them, them recording that song while I was sitting in those <laughs> luxury seats. Yeah. Th- that video was, um, I still have it. It's it's you can find it online, and and I'll probably I've it by now. If you're if whoever's listening to this knows that I dropped the song into the into the intro of the show, um, it was basically highlights and the Mets fooling around and lip syncing to this song. Uh, it started with this odd scene with three kids playing a game that I didn't know how to play they were flipping cards over and somehow somebody got one card on top and he won all the cards and i'm like is this a game kids play or was this something they just made up and gary carter dwight gooden and i think kevin mitchell walk up to them and (laughs) throw down these cards they're all mets cards and he goes go ahead doc and gooden goes do it
Ball game. Why'd you lose all our cards? I tried my best. Well, you lost all our cards. Kids, good. I Go ahead, Doc. Do it. The music starts, and the last card gets looked down, and a highlight comes out, and it's just all of these New York celebrities singing Let's Go Mets Go over and over and over and over and over again. Um, I'll post it to the blog so that people can watch it. It's it's very 80s. And most of the pe- most of the celebrities were true Met fans, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, that was a nice touch to it. Yeah. Um, including the mayor at the time. Um, from what I understand, Koch was a Mets fan, despite, you know, because like Giuliani was not a Mets fan. No, to Giuliani, I think, I don't think he tried to pretend. Giuliani was a Yankee mm. fan. He would yeah. root for the Mets because he was the mayor of New York. Yeah, he was not a Mets fan. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so the regular season is not even, it's not even contentious. No, it, it was fairly early into the season. I'm trying to remember if it was still in April or if we got to May that uh, Whitey Herzog, who was the manager of the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and the Cardinals were our arch rivals, and they were the only team that really had a chance to contend in the National League East that season besides the Mets. But it was fairly early on that he just said, we're not catching the Mets. Yeah. And um, there's only there's only there were only two points in the season in the regular season where I remember one of them was more comical than the other. It seemed to take them forever to clinch where like their magic number was down to like three. And they went into this series in Philadelphia, who I think at that point was in second place and they got swept. And I don't think anybody thought that they weren't going to clinch the division, but it was like, you know, like get on with it already. You know, everybody was just getting very impatient, but somewhere around the all-star break, they went into Houston because um, they had a series. It was, I think it was like right after the all-star break, uh, either before or right after the all-star break in Houston and the all-star break, the all-star game was played in Houston that year. And uh, this is where the Astros actually kind of own them a little bit. And, and that would be kind of, foreshadowing later on and uh, just something I we I don't want to get it too much into but I think it's it's hard not to talk about the 86 Mets and not talk about sort of the reputation they they've earned over the years for their um off the field activities which sometimes spilled onto the field because there were some a couple of really classic brawls and I do want to talk about that Cincinnati game in in a minute but there was this incident in a nightclub in Houston where a couple of them got basically busted for a bar fight. Now, I can tell you I had been in Houston a year earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some, a friend of mine who's a huge New York Giants fan uh, talked me and three other friends into flying to Houston to see the Houston Oilers play the New York Giants uh-huh. at the Astrodome. And while we were there, we actually were in that bar. <laughs> and it then became the, infamous a couple of you know the the, the following year. Yeah, and it was. I, I just can't remember saying. Kept saying, I I, I was there. <laughs> it's funny because um, there's a whole book, and and if you really do want to read about the the exploits of this team off the fields, there's an, it, it, the book is excellent. It's called The Bad Guys One. It's by Jeff Perlman, and um, uh, 
it's a very very well written book and um you just kind of as a, as a kid guy who was nine years old at the time reading going oh wow you know like there was stuff i knew about and then there was because i knew about a lot of the daryl strawberry dwight gooden stuff and espn just actually just recently ran a 30 for 30 called doc and daryl um which my wife and i walked away from going who would ever thought strawberry was the one who get his act together yeah <laughs> but um but I, I don't I didn't want to spend too much time on that um, because I don't think it, it to me it doesn't cloud the accomplishments of this team. But um, were you aware of it? Because I wasn't aware of it at nine years old. Aside from that incident, which then kind of faded away in my mind because they started playing baseball again and they were winning again and, you know, on to the playoffs. There were, there were rumors as far as drug use. Uh, in 85, there was a big thing where there was a trial uh, in Pittsburgh, I believe it was, uh-huh. with some drug trafficking. And Hernandez actually was one of the key witnesses in that. And, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it was came out that he had a uh, something of a history of cocaine use. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think he was ever an addict. I don't know. It was the but, 80s. But, but I, I think you know he he there was some cocaine trafficking and yeah uh, there were probably about ten ball players who were key witnesses in it and and I remember it, during the eighty five season Hernandez had to miss like a series because uh-huh. he had to go and testify at this thing or he mm-hmm. had to be present what I don't even know exactly what went on so there there was a little bit of a cloud over him for that even though I don't think he had much history beyond. You know what they what they said there. Yeah. The, the rumor was that that was why Whitey Herzog actually traded him to the Mets from the Cardinals. Uh huh. And again, there was you know there was always talk about hard partying and stuff, but nobody really talked about drug use to speak of. Yeah, because the um, the what's detailed in the book anyway is that uh, Johnson, Davy Johnson didn't look the other way so much as he kept them in check so that as long as they were winning, they got away with what, you know, he let them have their fun, but, you know, he had to come down to business. And he was their buffer between them and Frank Cashin, who did not approve of a lot of the activity. Um, and, uh, but I just wanted to touch on it a little bit because the other reputation they had was of being very arrogant on the field. And uh, that was because of things that, and you see it in the Mets in the highlight video, something we used to rent from the video store all the time called 1986 Mets, a year to remember. Um, still, I still have the VHS of copy I, of that, by the way. I, I dubbed I dubbed it. <laughs> we finally got two VCRs once and I dubbed it. Um, so I have my copy. But they, there was a whole segment about how they were arrogant and they talked about how the, the fans would demand curtain calls. You know, people like, you know, Carter would, you know, Carter hit a lot of home runs that year. He'd come out and give a curtain call and stuff. But then there were a couple of brawls. And um, I remember one against the Braves and there was one against the Dodgers. But the one that you and I both probably remember the most is the one that broke out between Eric Davis and Ray Knight um, in a game in Cincinnati that was probably the weirdest game. One of the weirdest games I'd ever seen when I was younger. Um they won. I think they – I don't remember what the final score was, but um, – and I could probably look it up right now, but I'm too lazy. Uh, I remember at one point in one inning, somebody on the mound kept balking, and they kept – McCarver kept explaining what a balk was. And then Knight and – I 
they they started jawing at each other while Davis was standing on third. I think it was Dave, Davis slid into third. Mm-hmm. Eric Davis and Ray Knight. I'm sure. <laughs> Came in a little late with the tag and kind of gave him a shove to see if he came off the base. Yeah, Ray Knight didn't mess around. And uh, Eric Davis took exception to it and kind of shoved Ray back. Mm-hmm. And Ray Knight, uh, if you don't know, was actually, before he was a professional baseball player, he was a Golden Gloves boxer. Yes. And uh, he didn't take anything from anybody. <laughs> so when when uh, Eric Davis shoved him, he just belted him in the jaw. And then the bench is cleared. And then the bench is cleared. And um, in my mind, as brawls I've seen on television, it's it's up there with with some of the better ones because you don't always see brawls in baseball games that start anywhere but home plate. I think the vast majority of brawls happen because a pitcher hit a batter. So this is one of those rare ones that starts somewhere else. And um, both benches clear, and there's a, so many ejections that. By the time they hit extra innings, because this game went into extra innings, um, Johnson had to use Orozco and McDowell in the outfield, and he would platoon them in and out. I think he would pull one off the mound and put the other one in left, which I think you can do because they're still on the field as long as they're in the order. And uh, they ended up winning. But so it was just one of those odd games that you always remember, one of those few brawls that I remember. It's right up there with that. It's Armando Benitez, Tino Martinez brawl from like 1999. Oh, yeah, when, when Benitez was with the Orioles. Yeah, and because that was insane. That was like people going after each other in dugouts. And then I think the most famous brawl or one of the most famous brawls in all of baseball is Robin Ventura and Nolan Ryan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so. I, I can give a little background on this one because I found it. While okay. we were talking about it, it was on a Tuesday night, July 22nd, 1986, at Riverfront Stadium. Mm-hmm. The game went 14 innings. The winning pitcher was Roger McDowell. The losing pitcher, I don't remember him, Carl Willis. No, it's not a name and I the Mets, the Mets won it, scoring three runs in the 14th inning to win it 6-3. to three. Very nice. And, and just, just for baseball historians out, out there, the manager of the Reds at that time, Pete, Pete Rose. Rose. Yeah, because 85 was when he got um, – he beat Ty Cobb's record. Was he still playing at the time? Yeah, I, I – he, he was. was well, he was a player manager for a while. Yes. I'm seeing this box score if they if he played. I, I haven't actually been – yeah, you're right. He he was uh, listed as he a He did not hitter. play in this particular game. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, he, he pinch hit. He pinch hit. And he got a hit. Yeah. Um, I have – are you you on the Ultimate Mets database? Uh, no, right now I'm on baseballreference.com. Okay. I have I have this great book. I think it's been out of print for years. You might be able to find it on eBay. It's called it's the New it's the Daily News Scrapbook History of the '86 Season, and I, it is. I, I believe I still have that. I have yeah, definitely. It's such a cool. I, my my copy, the spine is all brittle, and you know I've because I flipped through this more times than I can count. Friends borrowed it, but it's this. For those of people who who might be interested in something like this and want to look it up on eBay, it is literally a collection of just basically every article from the '86 season that the Daily News, New York Daily News, printed, and uh, it's a really fun thing to f- flip through, especially um, the day to day and like you know as you're getting counting down the the magic number. Now, were, were you at the clinching game where uh, people rushed the field after they beat the Cubs and tore the field up? Oh, they. Or, they- 
really tore it up. No, I ended yeah. up watching that one on TV, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I was at the game when they clinched in 88. <laughs> I was not there when they clinched in 86. But they really, really destroyed that field. Yeah. The fans went in. And I, I even remember that from 69 and 73 when I was little. Like, it was a big thing to, like, take a chunk of grass and dirt. Yeah. Like, somehow that, you know... I, I don't know. I, I'm not, you know, looking back on it, I don't know what people thought they were doing. I don't know. But but the, the field was just destroyed. And I remember uh, the groundskeeper, if I remember right, his name was Pete Flynn. Mm-hmm. And they interviewed him. And it was probably the worst thing you could do is interview this guy right after it happened. <laughs> and he, he was an Irish immigrant with the brogue. Yeah. He, he was looking and he was, he was like, had total disgust in his face. And he was like, these fans, they don't deserve a winner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know groundskeeper Willie was Scottish and not Irish, but that's what I'm picturing. At least I think he was Irish. No, he was Irish. I I know who you're talking about, and and you're right, but you're just like, I'm just picturing groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah, he was the connection, but (laughs) yeah, but yeah, and um, so, but we go to the play. The playoffs were eighty. The eighty-six playoffs um, back then. Uh, this was the second year in which the 86 championship, the, the championship series went to seven games. Prior to that, they were just five. Uh, prior to 85, I think 85, they were seven. And then 86, they went, they were seven. Prior to that, they were five games, best of five. And the Major League Baseball would not introduce the wild card until 1995. Or I think they were going to do it in 94, but the strike the strike yes, end of the season. That's correct. So the first wild cards to be played were 95 because um, that was the year that it was the Yankees and the Mariners and the Red Sox and Indians were the four teams in the American League. And I can't remember the National League. Off the well, top you, of almost, you almost had a wild card sort of thing in 1981, which was a strike shortened mm-hmm. season. And what they did that year was they took the winner, division winner from the first half of the season and they had them play against the division winner from the second half of the season. Yeah. In each division. So they had two rounds of playoffs. Yeah. In in that season, which was unheard of before that. Yeah. So that was almost the introduction of the wild card there. Mm-hmm. And you have um, the Mets, who were 108 and 54, playing against the Houston Astros, who had beaten out, the I think, the Giants. And the Astros had a very solid team and they had a really good pitching staff um and over in the american league not to discount that you had boston who was playing uh who were then known as the california angels and that series went to to went deep too In, Um, in that era the california angels were what the yankees eventually got the reputation of being the team that went out and bought all the players mm mm-hmm they, they, you know, they had Reggie Jackson on that team. They yes. Had, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember even who was on the, the. Rod Carew was on that team at one point. Yes, he was, and I, I think uh, Don Baylor was on that team. Maybe. I'm not sure, but Baylor, they, they had. No, Don maybe? Baylor was on the Red Sox. He was on the Red Sox. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but, but they, they had, you know, they were like yeah. the, the best team money could buy. Yes. In, in baseball that season. They had yes. all the high price. I'm sure they had the highest payroll that year. And if you want a really good book, and I'm, I'm sure this book is out of print because I bought it in the in the mid-'90s, it's called One Pitch Away. It's by Mike uh, Sowell, S-E- S-O-L-W-E-L-L. He interviews 
people, players who are in both of those series and in the World Series. It's all about the 86 playoffs in the series. And it's it's just these great in-depth interviews and stories. And the the Donnie Moore story from the ALCS, just to go on that tangent for a little bit, is heartbreaking. Yes. Because um, Donnie Moore had a lot of just he had pro he had psychological problems. He had he he was he was an abuse. He ended up killing his um his girlfriend or wife, I believe, and himself. And it, his life was very, very tragic. And um it was compounded or just psychologically, I don't want to say the, the game kind of killed him, but he gave up this home run to Dave Henderson in game, I think it was five of the ALCS, and that was the the Angels were on the verge of making it to the series, and he gave up the home run, and they just they never recovered. They that was it. They were done after that, and uh, they lost the next couple of games. and And Moore never recovered from that. His career went in the toilet, and he was already he already had mental problems, and and his life ended in tragedy. But that series was very very tough fought. But you get this Mets Houston series, and um, they lose the first game. One to nothing on a Glenn Davis homer. I think it was the Glenn Davis homer was like in the first or second inning. Second inning. And um, and they were just dominated by Mike Scott. They yeah. had oh, hits God. in the game, and and you wouldn't even think they had yeah. that many. They were just so overwhelmed by him. Yeah, and they win the series four to two. And both of the games that they lose, and Scott were to Mike Scott. Mike Scott would be the MVP of the uh, of the playoffs that year, which you don't expect with the losing player. The lose, a player from the losing team to be the MVP of the series, but that's how dominant he was. I mean, they were trying to prove whether or not he was scuffing the ball because uh, he had a very wicked split-finger fastball. I have no doubt that he was scuffing the ball. Probably but I was. I don't think that made him unique. I think there were a lot of guys who scuffed the baseball. So This is, this is the tail end of an era where people were doctoring baseballs and were still getting away with it. You don't see that as much anymore. Um and well, because they, they just they just flip the, the balls out of place so quick now that you know the play the pitcher doesn't have time to mm-hmm. to to change it true. to his uh, liking. Yeah. Know, the only thing they do now is you know you get the occasional guy who you know put a bunch of uh, pine tar in his hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, you don't really see too much. Yeah. In the way of doctoring. Yeah, and and he was, but he just he was mowing them down, and they couldn't get a hit in edgewise. And then out of the Four games they won. The only one that they won decisively was Game Two behind Bobby Ojeda, who yeah, proved to one. Yeah, and he he proved to be such a solid pitcher for this team. Um, and they had done they had done a couple of things in the midseason. Just to go back, they had they had released George Foster. Um, they had Jordan Lee Mazzilli to Lee, replace him. Lee Mazzilli, who who played his part here and there. Uh, Ed Lynch got traded away. No, I think Ed Lynch was still with the team at that point. Maybe. Wasn't he? he was eventually traded to the Cubs. To the Cubs. I um, thought that was later, though. Yeah, I he got he was still with the team. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I, I, he has a ring, and I want to say, but I want to say that they they offloaded him at some point, and then, but and and uh, but Mazzilli was the one call up that was, uh, or the one acquisition that was that was significant, and then they brought up a couple of. Kids from the minors who, like Elster, was I think in the series for a, a few plays. Yes, um, they reduced their lineup, their rotation. They went to the four man rotation of 
Darling, Ohita, Gooden, and um, I think they just did the three. Or who was the fourth starter? Uh, did they start well, Sid? I'm trying to think now. Game. Uh, um, oh, I can look this up. <sighs> do, 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 do. Game game three. I remember game three being like an early game. I think they started yeah. at like 11 a.m. or something like that. And that was the yeah. one where they they won it on a on a late Len Dykstra home run in the ninth inning. Oh yes, I remember that game. And Lenny Dykstra, the man they call Nails on the mess ball club is waiting. Now the pitch and a high fly ball hit the right field. It is fairly deep. It's way back by the wall. He did it! It's a home run! A home run! The Mets win the ball game. Dykstra hits a home run. Lynn I think that game Ron Darling started. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. Because the first game, game one was good, and game two was Ojeda, game three was Darling. Uh, game four, I'm pretty sure Sid Fernandez started. Okay. That's I was at game four. That was the ticket that was the playoff game that my uh that my season tickets got me. Mm-hmm. And that one was another Mike Scott blow us away game. I remember uh I, I believe Paul Simon sang the national anthem, if I remember right. Huh. Um and and it was just kind of depressing. They lost three to one and again yeah. they were just kind of dominated. They only had three hits in the game and, and they really didn't do anything much. And then that was on a Sunday. And mm-hmm. then w- one of my buddies and I just decided we had to go to the Monday game. We just had to go. It was game five. Game five. And we scalped tickets through somebody it was like we made a phone call and scalped them we didn't go to the stadium and buy them off some guy carrying them around but i remember we paid a hundred dollars each oh to, to go to the game which was an unheard of amount of money yeah but you know it's still you know looking back on it 30 years later i'm glad i did it. i was gonna say i know that game and and yeah. thrilling game and i was thrilled to be there for it yeah uh it, that one went 12 innings it was nolan ryan against good it was good yeah and it just was like kind of a battle of two pitchers who really were on their game, even mm-hmm. though Houston had nine hits over the course of the game. But, they, you know, it was it was just, you know, one to one going into the ninth inning. The game went 12 innings. And when they ultimately won it, it was on a Gary Carter dribbler, you know, one of these balls that bounces mm-hmm. 800 times before it gets to a fielder. Bottom of the 12th inning. One out. One one time. Charlie Kerfeld and Gary Carter dueling here. Up the middle, base hit. Backman turns third. Hatcher's throw. No play. Easy for Backman. Carter wins it with his second hit of the series. And the Mets win the ball game in 12, 2 to 1.
yeah scored the winning run and it was just you know after having been at the game the night before when Mike Scott dominated them it was just such a thrill to go to to that such a well-played game and they had done so well against Nolan Ryan in game two of the series yeah that I I was a little surprised I was you know at this point I'm thinking oh Ryan's over the hill he can't do it anymore and and he just you know, Ryan, he, he, he pitched a masterpiece that game, but yeah. he ended up on the other end of it. And I seem to remember, I, I'd have to look at the box score, but I seem to remember he pitched into extra innings. Um, he didn't I, lose the game, but I think he... Yeah, no, because um, I, I, Charlie Kerfeld lost the game. Charlie Kerfeld is a pitcher I'll always remember because he had this, this pot belly... He looked like the kid who would get beaten up in gym class. He 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 got this pot belly and he had these nerd glasses. I'm like, how are you a major league pitcher? Um, but Kerfield was on the mound because right before and, and it, game three and five are one of the last at bat. Um, and three is the Lenny Dykstra home run, and five is the Gary Carter hit. But the other person involved in both of those in the Mets was Wally Backman. And in game three, Backman had that single down the line, single, and he he did that slide that was legal. But Hal Lanier kept arguing that it wasn't, where he just kind of rolled himself down the first base line to avoid the tag. Right. And um, and then Dykstra hit uh, just, I think, Lenny Dykstra's reputation after he left the Mets is what's going to solidify him in the minds of a lot of people. The Phillies, um, just the the this the kind of the, that disgusting Phillies team from 93 and then all of his financial issues and things like that. But this was Lenny Dykstra when he was like the skinny kid and he hit this, this home run that like it, it was looked like they were trying to will this home run over the right field wall. And, um and I remember I'll just, we'll never forget like when he, when he saw it go out, just like them leaping up in the air and, uh but uh Backman Kerfield tried to pick Backman off, and Backman was like the definition of scrappy, this short second baseman who never was afraid to get down and dirty, and he he, he made it to second. And Carter would never have had that RBI if Backman was not hustling from the moment the ball hit that bat. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. And um, but yeah, I think – I want to say Ryan pitched like 10 innings, and so did Gooden. As well, and when those two guys, even at his age, at that point, when they hit their groove, that was just—it was the definition of a pitcher's duel. I mean, those two just just put each put down batter after batter after batter, and uh, well, the, was, the thing about say. Nolan Ryan was he didn't always have pinpoint control. He walked no. a lot of batters, and. He was inconsistent in that respect, and that's probably why he didn't have the – even though he had 300 wins, yeah. he didn't have the highest winning percentage as as you would expect a dominant pitcher of his nature to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he was on and he was throwing strikes, he was virtually unhittable. Yeah, he is – Only when he was a little wild and had to kind of force it into the strike zone, that's when you could beat him. Mm-hmm. He, I looked at the box score. He pitched nine, good and pitched ten. Okay. Yeah, and then you have Game Six and and Game Three. I was I I wrote about this years ago. I was at a friend's birthday party, and the mom wanted was like, "We're gonna play party games." And the game was on, and we all sat around. We're like, "No, we want to watch the end of the game because it was like the eighth inning." So we watched the end of the game. Four, I was watching at my parents' house. Um, well, you know, of course, but uh, we I watched five. I was at school. I came home. 
it was probably in one of the later innings because this is back when and, and now they are putting some playoff games on during the day. But this is back when like half the games were on during the day because I think ABC had the NLCS and NBC had the ALCS and then NBC had the series. Um, so I saw that and then game six started during the day because I came home and it was like the eighth inning and the Mets were losing three nothing. And everybody, even I knew that they were not going to win game seven because Mike Scott was pitching again. And if he was going to be as good as he was in game one and game four, they were screwed. So they had to win it. And Bob Nepper pitched what was probably the game of his life. It was more than Mike Scott pitching the way he did because I think they didn't have a chance to win game seven because on top of the fact that he was pitching phenomenally, he was in their heads. Yes. Oh, so very much so. They they weren't going to overcome. They weren't going to get past that. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you, everybody knew it. Like you said, it was just it was so clear. So they had to win Game Six. And at the time that 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 this was occurring, uh, again, I was out of college and I was in my first real full time job. But my job hours. Now we worked a phenomenal amount of overtime in the job at the time, mm-hmm. but but when I didn't work overtime, my job hours were from six a.m. to two p.m. Ooh, so I got out of work at two p.m. The game was already underway, mm-hmm. and I went. Me and my buddies went down to the bar in the basement of the building, you know, the lobby of the building that we yeah, were, and we were watching a couple of innings down there, and they just the Mets until you got to the night. Ninth inning, the Mets were just not doing anything offensively. Yeah. They gave up three runs in the first inning, and they just weren't doing anything offensively. And at some point, we said, you know what? Everybody, let's just go home. <laughs> and uh, and I got I, I, – because I used to go into work so early, I, had, I would drive in sometimes, mm-hmm. and they would pay for my parking, which was nice. Uh, so I got in my car, and I was listening to it on the radio, and I got home just in time for the ninth inning. Mm-hmm. And I sat riveted to my TV set. Yeah. The ninth inning, all of a sudden, the Mets' offense came to life, and they scored three runs. Yeah, and it started. Came up. Yeah, and it starts with, and I will never forget this because my mom let us eat dinner in the den, and they never. My parents were very much a we eat dinner in the kitchen or dining room um, as a family, and we were like, can we eat in the den? Because we did not want to walk away from the game. But I remember that. Um, it starts – Dykstra starts the rally with a triple and I remember they put Dave Smith in and Dave Smith was a Houston reliever and he was the one who gave up the home run to Dykstra in game three. And the back of my mind, I'm like, he's going to hit – like I, I just – I knew something was going to happen. I was like, oh, Dykstra – I thought he was going to hit a home run, but he hit a triple and they just – it just went from there. But then like Houston – this game went 16 innings. <laughs> And Houston did not go down without a fight. I mean, even to the very end, you have Jesse Orozco on the mound exhausted. And I think – I don't know if the bases were loaded or if there was like a couple men on and Billy Hatcher I think is up. And it's like – it's not like – he, he has already hit a home run in the game. Mark. Yeah. So basically it was either him or Bass. It was either him or Kevin Bass. And like it was basically – Houston was not a chump team and and they're 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 threatening again and the fans are getting rowdy and it's like are we going to go 17 or is Houston going to win this game and Orozco struck him out and I think I think the famous story is that Hernandez um 
went up to him and he said, like, if you throw anything but a slider, I'll kill you. It's two and two. With two out, the tying run, Danny Walling at second base. The winning run at first base. becomes the first winner of three games in relief in postseason play. The losing pitcher will be Aurelio Lopez. Or something like that. Yeah, the, the, the story has become a little apocryphal because it's yeah. changed. I've heard Hernandez tell the story several times, and what he says he said to Orozco changes in some of the stories. Yeah. But apparently he, you know, he, he said... You know something aggressively about it. Yeah. You know, if you if you do anything, I'm I'm gonna you know we're gonna fight. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like you said, they did not go down easy. The Mets scored a, a run in the 14th inning, and now you're thinking, okay, now they just gotta shut the shut the Astros down for one more inning, and they've already had 12 consecutive innings of the of the Astros scoring zero because mm-hmm. they scored all three runs in the first inning. Yeah. So you think, okay, now we're gonna win this game, and that's when Billy Hatcher hits the home run to tie the game. Oh God. And that was meant to score three runs in the 16th inning, and Houston scores two. Yeah, and the final score is seven to six. six. So they just barely squeaked out the win here. I mean, this this was one of the most epic games ever. Yes, and and Hatcher's home run too is like a Carlton Fisk home run from that from the '75 series, where it's like it just stayed fair. And and you know he had to watch it and watch it and watch it. And it went and 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 you know to the Houston Houston's credit, the Astrodome was not quiet either. And then um and Boston had won against um, California, and then you get this series, and they lose the first two, uh, the first one on an error by Timmy Tuffle, which oddly enough would be prophetic for later for Boston later in the series. Yeah. I, I you know, at the time I was like so angry. Ugh. Uh, I, Ugh. I remember that, you know, cause, cause Tuffle, the, it basically it went through his legs. Yes. And after it went through his legs, he kind of did the fist pump, like, you know, damn. Yeah. And, and I just thought, you know, I don't know. I just thought you suck. I hate you. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and, 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 and it's so wrong. Cause Tim Tuffle by, by, Every account I've ever heard and every interview I've ever heard seems like he's one of the nicest guys in the world. Yeah. And and, and never gave a half-assed yeah. effort. So I was just so, you know, just too emotional on that one. Yeah. Game two, Roger Clemens dominated us. Yes. And game two, I was at. Mm. And what I can tell you again is I believe that one, Billy Joel sang the national anthem, if I remember right. Uh, sounds But it was, sounds just, right. it was such an... So just such, it was such a downer of a game, game two, because they just didn't do anything. They scored three runs over the game, but they gave up nine, and and they were just never in that game. So this, so now you're at Shea Stadium for the first two. You have home field advantage, and you drop. You're the, you're the heavy favorite. 
Yeah. And you drop the first two games. Now you're going to their home park for three. And Dykstra, it looked it looked bleak. I yeah. Have to and then Dykstra leads off the game with a home run in game three. And then the same thing Tommy Agee did in game three in 1969, by the way. Oh, yeah, that's right. And Ojeda just Ojeda had a terrific series. Um, and they win seven to one. The next night, I mean, and we've seen a lot of retrospectives on the 86 series, like going back to maybe the mid 90s when ESPN Classic was still, I don't even know if that channel's still around. Um, It is, but I don't get it in my cable. I don't get it in my, I don't think I get it in my cable package either. But then when they were still Classic Sports Network and, and they used to talk about how this was one of the greatest series of all time. And if you do break it down from game to game, it is and it isn't. I mean, the Boston, the fact that the Mets came back from two down to tie it up into, you know, and, and then eventually win is, is a feat in itself. Um, games three and four, I mean, f- game four is just Gary Carter hitting these two monster home runs, literally, because he think hit that a- was against Oil Can Boyd, if I remember. Oh, God, yes, Oil Can Boyd. Oil Can Boyd, who I think was supposed to start game seven, and then it was rained out, and they had to postpone it and then um the red the red Sox were able to start i think bruce hurst uh, yeah, bruce hurst turned into uh mike scott in the world series by the mm-hmm. way yeah yeah it was he, he pitched game one that they won one to nothing mm-hmm. and he pitched game five as well he pitched game five that the red sox won four to two yeah. which which put the red sox up three games to two going into mm-hmm. coming back to shea stadium yeah and that was really it was Unexpected that the Mets were going to go to Fenway and win two out of three. Yeah, like I said, it, it looked bleak coming off of <laughs> off, off the the, Shea, the two games at Shea that they had lost. Yeah. And and the thing is, this is the thing about the Mets. And 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 now, having been a fan of this team for so long, when they choke in the postseason, or 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 they just don't, they, I don't think they choked last year. They were legitimately beaten by the Royals. I mean, that Royals team was phenomenal. Yes, um, but there, there have been years where they have choked in the playoffs. Um, I wasn't used to this at this time. You know, years later, I would get used to a team choking in the playoffs every single year. And that was the Rangers, the Rangers every year. We used to joke that spring started when the Rangers were eliminated from the playoffs because the, every single damn year and they finally won the cup and it's, you know, but, but with the Mets, it was like, you know, in my mind, as a kid, I'm like, no, 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 they're supposed to win the series. What the heck is going on? And I, I want to spend a little more time on six and seven because game six and then game seven and game six more than game seven is what everybody remembers because of the 10th inning. Um, game six starts off with that guy parachuting in. Um, Sergio something. I can't Sergio, remember his name. Hold on. And I'm okay. telling you, I was in the stands. Mm-hmm. I had, I, you know, I, I was at that game in my basement. I have my ticket to that game in a frame hanging up. I am uh, jealous, sir, and and I admire you so much. <laughs> we we were at, we are with our season tickets, and I told you where those tickets were. Yeah, uh, the tickets they gave us for this game were in the upper deck by first base in the last row. <laughs> I don't care. You were there. <laughs> yes, and and. and I'm telling you, when 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 uh, when he parachuted in, that stadium turned electric. That was such a great thing, and I think the fans, I, mean, I think the players felt it too, and they fed off of it. Not to say that 
that they didn't have their bad moments in this yeah. game. Well, so I'm going, and, and, and so I I have very little memory of this actual game, to be honest with you. Um, not on the level that I have. I have very I have fewer memories of the series than I do of the playoffs. Um, being told to go to bed and all those other things. Um, and but I, I have the play by play in front of me from the Daily News, so it looks like it's two to two up until about the seventh. And then the Mets tie it up in the eighth, and we go into the tenth, tied three to three. Right. You're in the stands, and um, Dave Henderson hits a home run. I mean, does the place deflate, or is there still hope? And then they go five to three. So, like, what's the feeling going into the bottom of the tenth? Well. It did deflate. <laughs> I, I, I have to, you know, I, I want to paint this picture of, oh, we all knew they were going to come back, but no. <laughs> and you you got to be realistic. You're not going to leave early because it's the freaking World Series. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you're not going to leave early and then go to the parking lot and find out that you missed out on what turned out to be you know, the greatest moment in the history of the franchise. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody in the stands actually thought that they were going to go out there and score three runs in the bottom half of the inning. Yeah. And I, I remember, you know, one of one of my friends who was just a big dude, and he was just sitting there, and he was openly weeping, and he's like, "We we can't lose after the season we had. We can't. We can't." And 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 you know, I I wasn't joining him in the crying, but I felt it. <laughs> it, and- it was just just you know, like we couldn't have been more deflated, but that just made what what happened even more spectacular when it did. Yeah. So. Um, at one point, it's so. Is the story true about the scoreboard actually saying "Congratulations to the Boston Red Sox"? I can confirm that it's true only because I've seen pictures of it. Okay, I did All not right. see it on the scoreboard when it happened. Okay. Um, so Backman, I, I've got the play-by-play in front of me. So Backman flies out. Hernandez flies out. Carter. Well, Backman, sing- apparently, Hernandez goes to the to the uh, <laughs> locker. Yeah, he's yeah. Lock- he, he doesn't think they're going to win. Yeah, he, he's he's drinking a beer. Um, uh, that that's another one of those stories that about this. Um, so Carter singles, Mitchell singles, with Carter at second, and then Knight gets up and singles. When when did it start to dawn on you that they actually? I mean, did you still think that? You know, I mean, this is a team that throughout my history, I could tell you what did happen in the inning. Well, they they had three runners in scoring position and they left everybody on because they blew it. You know. Well, you know, but at at that point, with even with two outs, with two men on. Yeah, you get you got a shot. You, you, mm-hmm. You're thinking, well, yeah. you know, somebody hits a blast, now you win. Yeah. So you know, yeah. Now, now at this point, the fans were getting excited. There's no question. They were, you know, it, it got the fans up and they were cheering and hoping and praying that that something yeah. spectacular would happen. Yeah, because Carter Carter scored on on Knight's hit, and then um, Calvin Schiraldi comes in. Um, no, Bob Stanley relieved Calvin Schiraldi. And through that oh, wild, Alvin Chiroldi was who we gave up to get Bob Ojeda. Yes, among, yes. along with I think somebody else, but Chiroldi I think was the key player that we gave up. And Chiroldi wasn't terrible. Chiroldi had a solid year in, in relief in Boston, um, from at least what I read from Bill Simmons years ago. Um, and uh, Bill Buckner get got blamed for years for the game in the series, and Bob Stanley at least in more popular parlance, kind of gets off, gets off 
um, a little bit because of the blame that's placed on Buckner. But Stanley pitches a wild pitch. Fouled away. Tension mounts some more with two out in the 10th. 5-4 Red Sox. Ray Knight at first. Kevin Mitchell at third. Two and two to Mookie Wilson. And it's going to go to the backstop. Here comes Mitchell to score the tying run. And Ray Knight is at second base. And without Stanley pitching a wild pitch, the Mets don't win this game. And if Buckner had fielded that ball, the game would have been tied. Yeah, and people forget people forget that sometimes. Yes, that's, people totally sweep that under the carpet. That they weren't winning the series necessarily yeah. if that play didn't happen. Yeah, but that play is just so etched next to my it's, ticket mm-hmm. that I have hanging in the basement. I have the picture of Mookie Wilson and Bill Buckner that they both autographed. I have the same picture. <laughs> I, I love. I have the picture hanging up in the office uh, on the um, in my office here at home. Um, yeah. So, what do you remember about the, the 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 sequence? Is that Stanley throws a wild pitch, Mitchell comes in to score, Mookie Wilson fouls off. Mookie Wilson had one hell of an at bat. He fouled everything off, and he finally hits this dribbler down the first baseline, and it goes through the legs of Bill Buckner, and the Mets win the ball game. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner, here comes Knight and the Mets win it! Now Mookie swears that if Buckner fielded the ball, he was beating him to first base. And I could see it being close. Yeah, I, I don't know. He was, but at that at that point the game is tied. So yeah, you know, like there's there's a big exhale before that play happens. Yeah, because now you know, you know, at at worst we're going to the next inning. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there's there's like a comfort level that came across the crowd. Yeah, and then when that play happened, I mean, it was you know, you see it in slow motion a million times, but it was bang yeah. bang. This, yeah. this this wasn't a play that you know it didn't happen in slow motion. Yeah. I'm- you're but, so you're so used to the highlight reel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The place erupted. It was just insanity. I felt that upper deck going up and down and oh, that's awesome. And down and I'm thinking, this whole stadium's gonna freaking collapse. <laughs> it was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. It was it was it was the the most exciting thrill ride I've ever been on. Oh, that's so cool. Were you at seven as well? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> I told you I had a story for Game 7. Go ahead. Uh, after Game 6, we walked out of the stadium and we said we were at the best game we're ever going to be at in our lives, which has not – my opinion of that has not changed in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we said we we got to go out and celebrate. So now that game ends I, – I don't know what time it is, maybe 11 o'clock uh-huh. on a Saturday night. Yeah. And we drive into Manhattan – and we go to Chinatown and we go to Wohops, which is a famous 
Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. And we stuff our faces and we drink a lot of beer. Yeah. And I end up getting in about 4.30 in the morning. And I, and, and I wake up. And I am hungover as, <laughs> as you could imagine. And one of my buddies calls me up and says, I got an extra ticket for tonight. Do you want to go? And I said, I, I just can't. I can't oh. go. I am so dead right now. I just have to watch it on TV. And then, as an ironic twist, the game gets rained out and it gets played on Monday night. And I yes. could have gone. Oh, I could not physically go on Sunday, but I could have gone on Monday. Oh, that's rough. So, so I blew it. I had a chance to be at Game Seven, and I was not. But I was, you know, I still was at Game Six. So I, you know, I, I can't ever complain about my uh, about what the baseball gods did to me. But I had a chance to be at Game Seven, and I blew it. And oh, and I, I missed uh, my story is that I missed Game Seven. Um, I might have seen part of it, but I was sent to bed um, because my parents enforced a bedtime on the weeknights because it was a school night. And then I came down and my dad had written this big note on a poster. You know, they won. The dream is alive or something. And then he had this. He had the uh, the score. And I was I was really excited. At game seven, I watched at one, another friend's house mm-hmm. ultimately. Uh, and there were three three of us that watched it together. And we were all big Met fans, and we had we had champagne on ice. Yeah. And when they won, we were all so disappointed that that it doesn't, you know, when you shake it and you open it up, it doesn't, it doesn't just keep spraying very much. <laughs> you know, it, it bursts out when you open it up, and then that's it. It's over. It's you got to put thumb over it to, to direct it and get yeah. it to spray the way you want it's it like, to. We didn't know that it's at like the a time. Garden so hose. It was a little disappointing. Yeah, it's like a garden hose. Um, <laughs> exactly, like a garden hose. Yeah. So – and the other thing that that always bugged me, and you know, I have no love lost for the Boston Red Sox. I'm like, you know, they're kind of a whatever team. The only time I've ever really opened really rooted for them was in 2004 when they beat the Yankees in the playoffs. And then I was like, you know what? I'd like to see them win. Um, well, I, I have to admit, I am a sour grapes type of fan. Oh, I hate the Yankees. And and I am not a Yankee fan. I I am true to the old stupid T-shirt that says my two favorite teams are the Mets, the Mets and whoever's playing the Yankees. I often refer to them as the team that shall not be named. So I, uh. I latched <laughs> on to the Red Sox because that's the team the Yankees hate the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they, they have become my, my favorite American League team. I could, and it's purely sour grapes. I could see that. I, I don't – you know, uh, me and me and other teams in baseball, if it's a decent game on, I'll watch it. Um, I'm like that with hockey as well. Uh but no, I, the Red Sox aren't – I'm like, you know, I can take them or leave them sometimes. But when they are playing the Yankees, I agree with you. It's, it's you know, it's fun to see them. Um, I never want to see the Cubs win the World Series because I'm sure that's a sign of the apocalypse actually going to happen. <laughs> uh, no, I actually want to see the Cubs win the World Series. That would be fun to watch just we, again. I, I told you about how we went to Houston to see the Giants play. Yeah. In 86, we went to Wrigley to see the Mets play. Oh, very nice. I have and, a... and I got to tell you, the, the mm-hmm. Wrigley fans – because you know the Mets was running away with it by then, and the Wrigley yeah. fans were so cool. Oh, cool! Uh, during during the game, like the, the the beer guy came walking over, and he hands us you know four of us went. He hands us four, four beers. Oh, that's from those guys over there. Oh, wow! Like you know, people were so cool. And then after the game, the Mets won the game. After the game, we go out onto whatever street it is. I, I forget what street it is out, is out there. And they have a three-man jazz band playing, and everybody's uh-huh. celebrating and having a couple of beers and dancing. And it was just such a fun place and such a great it's atmosphere. Really cool. And the fans were so welcoming. I, 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 I can root for the Cubs. I have no I, problem with that. And then the interesting 
tail end to that one is uh, on Sunday we were flying back to New York. We didn't go to the game on Sunday because our flight was too early. Uh-huh. But what happened is we went to the airport and, and our flight got delayed. So we're sitting in the airport. The Mets were traveling from Chicago to St. Louis to play. Uh-huh. And while we're sitting there waiting for our delay, all of a sudden, all the Mets come walking into the airport. And they're in the same area as we are waiting for their flight. Oh, wow. So we talked to Keith Hernandez. We talked to Daryl Strawberry. We talked to Howard Johnson. Uh, the most welcoming guy in the world, Gary Carter. He, he sat us down. He's asking us about when we go to Shea and how often we go. Oh, that's cool. He, he, you couldn't imagine a nicer guy. He, he had a reputation for me that like, like that, and I, I'm glad it's true. There's, there's a lot of people who said, oh, Gary Carter always knew when the camera was on, and that's, that's yeah. what he you know, you put on a show. But you know what? There was no camera on. He could have easily just blown us off. But he was, like I said, so welcoming that I said, you know what? You, can't, you just can't fake that all the time. Yeah. That's that's what he was. He was genuinely that. And and in posthumously, that's what the team pretty much says about him, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that if anything, the, the reason why people held it against him was because they were big partiers and he really wasn't. He was just a, a really true, truly a family man. Mm-hmm. And, and when they would go somewhere, he wouldn't go out partying. He'd go to his room and hang out. And, you know, yeah. And, and and he wasn't he just wasn't that kind of guy and and I couldn't have more respect to him and I for, that for him excuse me and yeah. I was so sad when he passed uh, away I was incredibly sad when he passed away um, I have no story really my wife does this cracked me up I was I was teaching my journalism class or something my yearbook staff and I get this call on my cell phone and it's Amanda and I'm like oh shit because she never calls me at work because. She knows that I'm usually teaching. If she's calling me at work, it's an emergency. We'll e- because we, we email back and forth all day. And she's like, she says, guess where I'm standing? Because she was in Chicago for a corporate event, some corporate training that her company was running or whatever, and she was helping host. I was like, no, what's up? She's like, I'm in center field at Wrigley. I was like, oh, you're at a game. She's like, no, 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 no. I'm in center field. And she has a picture of herself touching the ivy standing on the warning track. Did they she got find Andre Dawson in there? No, she did not find Andre Dawson. <laughs> and I was like, oh, sh-. and I hung up and they're like, what is that? I told my sports guys that on the, what I, it was the newspaper staff because I told my sports editor, I was like, my wife just called me from Wrigley Field. She touched the ivy. They were like, oh, my God. Uh, so anyway, back to game seven. Um, once again, the thing about the Buckner thing. Is that Buckner, the Red Sox were winning game seven up until the sixth inning. They were up three to nothing. They went up three to nothing by the end of the second. And um, because I've got, like I've said, I've got this daily news book here and they'd have a play by play of it um, for each game. And um, in the bottom of the six, that's when the Mets uh, start coming back. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no. Can I? Can I? If I remember to grab them, can I post those to the show notes? Yeah, that was, that okay. was uh, just just to kind of explain what I did. I, I just gave Tom two pictures in the off season. Uh, the police department played their championship softball game at Shea Stadium. Uh huh. And this was in the off season. I I believe between '87 and '88. Okay. And uh, if you attended the game the stadium was totally open to you. So I have pictures of me sitting in bullpen seats. 
I have pictures of me standing next to the uh, 1986 sign on the on the field, and I have a picture of me in the dugout on the bullpen phone. You you really did look like Keith Hernandez. <laughs> I did I did have you, a Keith Hernandez. Look yeah, that's that. awesome. That's I awesome. Stash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will I will definitely uh, share share some of these pictures. This is great. Um, so they go down three nothing. They're in the sixth. They come back. Um, with uh, just hit after hit after hit, uh, and then um, they're up, they're tied three three, and then in the seventh, they just uh, Knight Homer Knight gets the game winning Homer, um, and then Strawberry uh, would eventually hit a home run with like and take forever to round the bases. I remember that it was just this long walk around. They hit a monster home run, and they go up eight to five. And um, you have this. I had this indelible. I mean, granted, I have the cover of. I have the covers of the Daily News laminated on the wall of my classroom from Game Six and Game Seven. And it's hanging over a banner I've had since I was a little kid. The 86 champions is over my uh, whiteboard. But even without seeing that every day, I can close my eyes and I can see the shot of Jesse Orozco on the mound, on his knees, fists in the air, and the headline just, yes! He's When did it dawn on you this was actually going to happen? Because I, like I said, I missed it. So, as soon as they were tied up, I just at that point I felt like this has just got to happen now. This this is fate. There's no way they're going to lose this game. Yeah, and and that's kind of the way they played it. They were just from that point they they were just not going to be denied. Yeah. And. I, you, the rest of the game was just kind of like a celebration for for us. Mm-hmm. We were just watching it and 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 just soaking in every moment and enjoying it, and thinking about how we were going to splash that champagne all over each other. <laughs> just so disappointed in that. I'm yeah. sorry. Because we didn't have enough bottles to just keep trying until we did it right. In the, in the stadium, they have as many as they want. Champagne. Well, okay, there is cheap champagne out there, but you know, it's not like it's. It's not like you bought a six pack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we had three bottles. We each had one. Yeah. If you if you blew your bottle, you blew it. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Did you go to the parade? Because uh, I think the parade was the next day, right? Yeah, I I did go to the parade. At the time, I had worked in downtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. and my boss, the boss of my department, knew that some of us were huge Met fans. Yeah. And he said, "Look, you know." Go down, just come back, you know, in a reasonable amount of time and, you know, finish your day's work. Don't don't take off and leave stuff undone. But the way my job was, the job I had at that time, you couldn't leave until it was done anyway. That was just an nature. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. I got you. So, yeah, we went down and we we watched the parade for, you know, whatever, an hour and a half or so. And there, it was, you know, at that point, it was just, again, it was, it was almost like the second half of that uh, game seven. It was just soaking it in and watching the players go by and uh, – you know, the, I'm trying to remember who missed it. I know Stra- I think Gooden missed it. Gooden missed it. Strawberry was. I think Strawberry was there. He was there because there's a picture of him holding his kid, um, on 
uh, in the Daily News. But Gooden famously missed it because he was hungover. Or he was still drunk. But, um, but yeah. Uh, so, really, like, you know, um, the team would be... They would get to the playoffs in '88, and they would lose in a in a heartbreaking fashion to another pitcher because Oral Hershiser was on fire that year. And then the Dodgers would go on to win that in another World Series that a lot of people remember for uh, one moment, which was the Kirk Gibson home run. Um, and they would they would have a few second or third place finishes up until about was like '91, and then '92 was that. Uh, that year that would come to be known as the worst team that money can buy mm-hmm. uh, with Benia and the Vince Coleman thing. And they would really go down the tubes for a few years until the late, the later part of the nineties and, and the acquisition of people like Mike Piazza and, uh, and they've been up and down. Um, there have been years prior to last year where I was just praying for them to finish above 500 and yeah, they have a, the- that's the thing about that team is they were they were built to be a dynasty. They mm-hmm. were a powerhouse. And for them to win one World Series in all that time is just truly disappointing. It is. At the same time, though, I can't um, discount the fact that from probably about 84, 85, up until the when both teams really were fading, until the, the resurgence of the Yankees in, in the mid-90s, the Mets owned New York oh, in yeah. a way that that the Yankees always claimed to have owned. You know, Yankee, Yankee fans love to claim to have owned that, but the Yankees, in the, in the, especially in the late 80s, were, were awful, absolutely awful. And... Uh, they're, um, you know, and now the Mets, the Mets are, uh, at least as of right now, according to the ESPN app, and this we're recording this in late September. This is going to come out in late October. Uh, they're a game up in the wild card, so they have a shot at the postseason again, which I'm very happy about, um, and I'm sure you are too. Absolutely. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm watching them lose right now, and I'm very unhappy <laughs> about that. Sorry. What is it? But like. Even if they had won, they haven't won the series since. They have a 30-year drought in the series. Um, we're not getting into Rangers territory with the 1940 chance at everything. And that's I think that's possibly because the Mets and the Yankees are not in the same division the way the Rangers and the Islanders are. And that's a whole different rivalry. Um, but even if they had won the World Series in either 2000, which I would have loved, or last year, or they had made it in, what is it, 07? 2007 when they lost when they lost the, the Cardinals the Cardinals yeah um, that was heartbreaking too because <sighs> especially after uh, was it Andy Chavez that oh my God that catch that yes catch and yes. at that point you felt like they were fated to win that series and that game and what's his face strikes out looking it was a heartbreaker yeah and even if they had won the series at least at some point in the last 30 years. I still feel and granted this is because of my nostalgia for being a kid at the time that that 86 team in that series was still going to be very, very special. Do you feel the same way, you know, despite everything that's happened since? Yeah, no question about it. it it's for, for Met fans who lived it. And, and I think we're, you know, we're, 
Because somewhere along the line, I think we've become the same generation, but at that yeah. time, we were two very different generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we get older, we, we, the, the, the ages kind of meld a little bit more, and our age difference means so much less. But at that time, you know, you, you could see the influence it's had over the years on two of us who were in very different positions when this was going on and how mm-hmm. much it means to both of us. So, yeah, I, I think it's a special, very special year for Met fans. And... I've heard, you know, some debates on, you know, when they talk about the greatest teams of all time and where where they would rank on that list. And you've had a lot of teams who've won more, not a lot of teams, you've only had a handful, really. Yeah. You've had teams that have won more regular season games. And people want to point to that and say, oh, see, that, that means they're better. Well, you know, you had the Seattle Mariners won... I think like 116 or something like that when you're 114. Oh yeah. And th- and they didn't even go to the World Series. So no, I'm not I'm not willing to concede that that a better regular season record makes you a better t- team. I think the Mets were stacked offensively, defensively, pitching. I think they had clutch hitters. I think they had per- you know, never say die yeah. personalities and you know, nobody's perfect. You're going to lose some games. You know, they still mm-hmm. they still lost one out of every three games at one. Oh, yeah. Before. But but boy, they were a hell of a team. And I and I'm not going to sit here and say they're the greatest team of all time, because I don't think that would be fair either. Yeah. But I think they're on the list. The great really do. And they're one of the greatest teams or if not the greatest team I've ever seen play. And there's the other thing is and, and this is something I've said, because um, like I said toward the top of the show, I have a lot of I have cousins who are Yankees fans, and and I've had a lot of heated conversations over the years, as you do at holidays. Um, some families get into it over politics. Sometimes my family gets into it over baseball, and I've made this point because they they'll make the point about the legacy of that team of the Yankees and then how long they've been around and how much to, they've contributed to baseball and blah blah blah. I always contend that there's something special about being a fan of a team like the Mets or a team that doesn't always win because when they win and when they're this good, you savor it for so much longer. I just maybe it's just my bias showing through, but you know, I there's never an expectation for me that they're gonna that 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 the regular season is just something they have to play in to get to their playoffs the way that you know some other teams um even in football like the Patriots you know have been over the, during the Belichick era like where you know the the regular season is just this thing they have to do before the playoffs start right and we've had a lot of ups and downs and there's it builds character I will say and there are times where I've wanted to walk away from that team. Um, and it took me a while to come back after the strike, too. I remember in college, um, I didn't become an Orioles fan or anything, but you know, but I wasn't really following them. But I don't know. There, there's something I've been, always been special about this particular crew um, in the mid-'80s, and especially in 86. And I've watched a couple of times over the years. My VHS copies of things still work. And I've watched that 86 highlight video, and it's still – you still get goosebumps the way they, they paint game six. Um, granted, they use music and there's slow motion and, you know, they have the narration, but it's still like, holy crap. It's just it's just something uh, that's really, really special. Uh, is, I think, a, a testament testament to the uh, 86 team and the World Series is two years ago, uh, my niece and her husband for Christmas gave me the DVD collection mm-hmm. of the World Series games. 
Yes. And my niece's husband, who is a Yankee fan, bought a copy for himself, too. Oh, wow. Because he just he knows it's a great series. And he said, I, I can sit and watch this. I have no, you know. And, and uh, it was funny because when they lost the World Series, they have a uh, three-year-old at home. Yeah. So when when uh, when the World Series was over, my niece's husband calls me up with his son, who was then a little over two, on the phone, and he says, "Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought you'd you'd need a little cheering up, and you know, we're talking." And and I said, "Actually, what I was doing to cheer myself up was uh, I'm, I'm watching Game Six of the '86 World Series <laughs> the game of Christmas." <laughs> so uh, you know, it's it, it's. Uh, it stays with you, and and if you've lived through it, it's it's just so special. And that's you know I don't know what people who didn't live through it think of it. I know my son has watched the games, mm-hmm. and he's he is primed. He's ready for them to win a World Series in his lifetime. He's coming up on 19 years old, and he he went to his first playoff game last season, and you know he did, he got to see a winner against the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's good. But he, but he wants a World Series win. And he's waiting for it. And, and that's the talk we've had is that, you know, yeah, he's got friends who are Yankee fans who've seen numerous World Series. But when we finally do it, it's going to be more special to him than any one of those World Series that the Yankees got. Yeah. Yeah. It will be. I I compare it to the Rangers and I, it's only because of the drought the Rangers went through, but I'll never forget sitting in my pre-calculus final the day after they won the cup in a Rangers hockey sweater, hockey jersey sweating to death because it was June and my my t- teacher walking up there and he's an Isle fan going look at all the Ranger shirts we're just like hell yeah look at all the Ranger and that's what it's gonna be it's like I don't give a crap about dress code at work they win the World Series anytime that I, I'm, I'm walking into my Hernandez jersey <laughs> there you go yeah no, I'm with you on that alright so um, th- this was a lot of fun and and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to, to do this with you um, and that, that we were able to do this uh, before we go um, tell everybody where they can find you for our your non-sports podcast because neither of us really talk about sports on, on the air very much yeah they, you know we, we talk about it enough that we both knew that we were big Met fans but yes <laughs> beyond that yeah we don't do any regular sports shows I can be found on the two true freaks network where, where I am the co-host of back to the bins where we, we we review old comic books I am a co-host on listen to the profits where we are doing an episode by episode review of uh, deep space nine episode uh, the, the Star Trek deep space nine series uh, I am a co-host of keep them Flying, where we are doing that's kind of a podcast mini series. We're reviewing all the episodes and the final movie for Firefly. Mm-hmm. And my recent venture is Is It Jaws, where we review movies, old, new, medium, anytime, any era, and we compare them to the Jaws scale, which I've set up and uh, review them and have fun with those too. Cool. All right, and again, thank you for coming on. This was this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This this was a lot of fun, and it, it's fun to relive those moments, and especially with somebody who has the same fondness for it that I do. And I'd like to thank Paul for coming on. It was a lot of fun. He was gracious enough to share some old pictures with me, uh, and you'll be able to see those pictures and a lot more in the show notes on the blog. So after you're done listening to this, go over to popculturefidavit.com and check out the show notes. You'll get to see some uh, some interesting stuff. And that just about does it for this episode. Uh, but before I go, I have one more thing, one more thing I want to share. It's a very special announcement. This November 15th marks the first episode of a brand new 
podcast here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. It is called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, uh, 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 Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa, they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. So I hope you will follow me over there to that new podcast. We have a Facebook page up. It's Required Reading with Tom and Stella. And uh, we have finished recording episode one. We had a blast. Um, as and, uh, and like I said, that'll be out on November 15th. So check that out on the TTF feed. As for this show, look for a new origin story on November 4th. And be back here on November 8th for an election day special with Rob Aquaman Kelly as we cover all the president's men. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Shea Stadium, the big story, Mets 86, exciting, thrilling, awesome. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit. All clips and media are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, so no infringement is intended. Feedback can be sent via email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. For more content, including show notes, media, and essays, be sure to check out the blog, which can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can support all the Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com whenever you shop. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. To make a dream work.